Thank you for joining us on this episode of Eminent Teachnology with Dr. Rochelle Newton and Drew Stennett, where we examine current and emerging technologies through the lens of diversity and equality. Uh, so hello, everybody, and welcome back to a new episode of Eminent Teachnology with Dr. Rochelle Newton and Drew Stennett. Uh, today, we have an awesome uh, guest with us. His name is Mark Little, and he is the uh, executive director at the Keenan Institute of Private Enterprise, which I'm sure we're going to hear uh, a bit more about. Uh, but most importantly, he's very into uh, Afrofuturism music. Shout out to Sun Ra. We'll not uh, <laughs> I'll put some words in Mark's mouth there. <laughs> but uh, Mark, I was curious uh, if you could just tell us, like, to start off, just telling us a little bit about you and a little bit about your background. Sure. Happy to be here with both of you. And a little bit about me. I, I To begin, I'm usually not one who talks so much about myself, so feel free to, like, dig in if there's something <laughs> that is might be of interest that I don't go into in detail. Basically, I guess maybe the way I answer today is I'm, I'm from North Carolina, uh, my parents uh, were born in Eastern North Carolina. Their parents were born in Eastern North Carolina and in the low country of South Carolina. And if you keep going back, uh, families from West Africa, from the Americas and from Europe. I found myself in North Carolina today. I never intended to remain here. I grew, grew up here in Chapel Hill and I'm back in Chapel Hill. I've been back for about 10 years doing the work that I'm doing. Uh, but growing up, I never imagined that I would stay in North Carolina. I always thought I would leave, which I did, but I'm back. What uh, I actually happen to be back and doing the stuff that I'm doing. Uh, I, recently, I was trying to think about what is, what are some themes that tie together the various things that I found myself involved in. And I think the simplest way to talk about it is an interest in wonder. So things that are require creativity or challenge that are just wondrous and then people uh, and how to help people how to be inspired by people and, and so if I can try to essentialize something that's consistent across anything I might find myself involved in is those I think it's those two things nice Mark so I have a question what what led you to start black communities what was the impetus for that and can you talk about that a little bit yeah there's a nuts and bolts inspiration, which was a workshop that happened at UNC in 2015 that I got pulled into. I wasn't the organizer. And it was a workshop for the mayors of eight historic black towns across the Southeast. And it originally started out with five historic black towns all outside of North Carolina. And I got brought in to help bring some content. And I said, okay, I'm happy to participate, but how about bringing in three mayors from North Carolina. So that was the mayor of Princeville, North Carolina, Navassa and East Spencer, all black towns here in North Carolina. And that workshop happened. It was really exciting to be, to be part of that. After that, myself and Carlos Slocum, who's the co-chair of the Black Communities Conference and some others, we kept having meetings about what are things that we can do, not just for these eight historic black towns and not just with UNC, but Black communities across the United States, even globally across the diaspora, and not just UNC, but Duke University and universities broadly. And so that was the kind of the nuts and bolts inspiration, a vision to 
find out ways to inspire collaboration, cooperation amongst black communities and academics at universities that are doing something that has some relevance, relevance to black communities or, or it's research about black communities. I think my, my inspiration or reason for being involved separate from that kind of nuts and bolts thing is related to my background and the things I care about. And I think that in my, all the work that I do, I, I try to do a few things. And one of those is bring kind of the cultural and historical perspectives that I have and my family has to the work that I'm doing and being part of that conference and helping organize it was a way to do that in the context of my job. And I, you know, I may do that in other contexts, but to have, be able to do it while you're working is, is a, is a privilege. Absolutely. And so I want to talk about the, the conference a little bit, uh, typically held in the fall. Is it always in Durham or do you hold it in other areas as well? So I'll say when we first had it the first year in 2018, we were just going to have one. The intent was never to have multiple years. We would say we have one and then we'll have done the thing. And it went quite well and people were curious when the next one was. So when we were deciding where to have it, we thought a little bit about having a Chapel Hill and quickly decided that that wasn't going to be a good idea. Uh, for some reason, they're specific to UNC and the troubled history that UNC has with Black folks and Black communities. But more than that was the pull in, of Durham and the unique history of Durham uh, with Haytai and just North Carolina Central University. And it made a lot of sense. And I mean, even again, back to personal stuff, I grew up in Chapel Hill, but we went to Durham every weekend. And this was, you know, back when Durham was a scary place and blah, 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 blah. But we went there because that's where, you know, that's where the black folks were and, and culture and stuff. And so we went every weekend to provide that context for, for, for our family as I grew up. And so um, I was excited to have, have it in Durham and I had lots of connections and people I knew. And so it made a lot of sense. Uh, so when we just decided to have it again, we decided to have it in Durham again. Then in last year, of course, we had the pandemic and we pivoted to a series of webinars that were rapid response because when the pandemic hit, as people might have predicted, it impacted Black communities disproportionately, not just in terms of the health impacts, but all, you know, terms of which businesses actually ended up getting closed, uh, who's out of work, who's in, ended up being frontline workers, all, the, all these things. So we had a series of webinars on some of those topics. Then George Floyd was murdered. So that became part of this conversation. And as I was going, we we're trying to think about we should have another formal conference again, and but decided it couldn't be in person. And so in the spring of this year, we had a fully virtual conference um, you may want to ask me about what's next, uh, and <laughs> the, the answer to that is unsure. I uh, don't have any details there, but I will say that both Carl and I are very much committed to the conference continuing in some form 
somewhere hosted by someone. And so we're working right now to figure out what's the best way to do that, but no concrete um, plans for the next one right now. Well, I do have a suggestion. Uh, I've been trying to put together in Durham a diversity conference, um, you know, trying to, and I think I've talked to you about this before, you know, trying to bring people to the table to talk about the issues with inclusion and the lack thereof. You mentioned, uh, you know, frontline workers and all of those things who have been disproportionately, you know, either hurt by uh, COVID or uh, physically losing their lives and that people don't think that's a big deal. But in reality, it really is. And if these essential workers aren't important, then, then what else is there? You know, so that that's just a little 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 hint. You know, you could do whatever you want to do, but just a suggestion. But but my question is this about the conference. What's really interesting, um, in 2019, it was the most diverse conference I had ever attended. And I've been to Educause, Apple. I mean, you name the conferences, I've been there. But like people from all across the United States, some people were outside of the United States. Um, the topics that were covered were just impressive. The man who talked from Haiti was simply outstanding. Uh, I mean, it was just some amazing things. How do you how do you make the outreach to the people who who respond and present at the conference? Well, first, just a response to what you're saying. I appreciate that that was the experience you had. When I was talking about the conference to some potential sponsors, I would say this is black, a Black communities conference, which for some might seem like it's you know, narrowing the scope. The, to your point, like the diversity of topics is, was quite phenomenal. So the thing that was interesting is you had people of all different sites of professions, academics, but uh, teachers, educators, uh, pastors, you know, just the broadest range of, of types of roles of folks, but they were all there for the same purpose. So what they did could be very different, where they're from could be different, but their purpose of what is it that I can do to contribute to black communities, health, you know, et cetera, et cetera, that allowed people who have different languages they speak in, I mean, very literally in terms of language, but also just the jargon and all that to come together and be on panels together and interact. So in 2018, leading up to that, so 2017 into 2018, when we had no context for the conference, what we decided to do is we, we knew we wanted a space that was very welcoming to non-academics. And Carlin, I, I, I mean, I have an academic background, but I don't really work as an academic. I don't do academic research. Uh, I don't I don't teach uh, in the formal sense, but I'm in a university and I understand and we understood that that comes with a bunch of stuff. And so we wanted to make sure that we created a space that was welcoming for the fullest spectrum of people who have important roles in black communities. So that's a big a big spectrum of people. So when we put out the call for participants, we had, the benefit of graduate students who on the academic side, we said, here's a list of disciplines that we think might have something to do with black communities. And it's a long, a long list. And we said, look, go to the journals and do good searches for key terms, you know, black, African-American, historic black town, et cetera, across all these journals 
And anyone who's published anything that comes up in the past five years or 10 years, I can't remember what we put, put their name down. And so we generated like 600 emails like that from our lovely graduate students. Then on the non-academic side, we did a similar thing of writing down a list of historic black communities, uh, neighborhoods, uh, associations, and asked another set of graduate students you know, for the associations and groups, you know, find out contact information. And for these geographic places, Google and just find names of, of someone who's doing something in these places. And, and the goal was hopefully to find people who might present, but also more just to let people know what we were doing and get the word out. And so we did a lot of that. Uh, some of it was phone calls because a lot of some people don't do the email. Um, but we never, it was all kind of guerrilla marketing. We didn't, we never put any ads anywhere. Um, but it was a lot of just word of mouth, you know, finding out who's doing what and, and bringing them in. And I'll say one of the things that was interesting is in, in a couple of people, many people who came to the conference mentioned this. The quality of the presenters and the interaction was was really superb. And as, as you know, if we had if we had you there, Rochelle, you know, I mean, we had really phenomenal people. But the the folks weren't necessarily like the, the person on Twitter with fifty thousand followers. And so what what that meant kind of told us was we could put together an amazing conference of people doing phenomenal things. And these are the people who actually need to, they're there to actually make connections and build off each other as opposed to they're good, they've got their audience, they're doing their thing. Um, and so that collaborative feel, that, that feel that everyone is really on the same level and there to, to make connections and do stuff that I think pervaded it as opposed to Here's you know the three or four keynote speakers that everyone goes to see, and they're they're up there. It, it didn't have that kind of feel to it, which was it just happened that way. We we didn't. I'm fortunate. I'm happy that it happened that way, but it's, it wasn't something we anticipated or predicted. Excellent. I want to tell you uh, one of my experiences at the last conference. So um, I did a, a presentation on technology in the classroom, and most of the people who came to that presentation were college students, first year, second year, or somewhere in their college career. And three or four were from Carolina. A few were from Michigan. I think a couple from Ohio State. I don't remember all the places where they were, but I mean, it was, it was really interesting. So I'm the old duck in the room and everybody else is still, you know, baby's milk, right? So I'm sitting here trying to talk to them about technology. Of course, they ran circles around me. You know, they knew all the things I was talking about and all that stuff. But what really was interesting in the talks that they gave back to me was the lack of belonging in predominantly white colleges. I heard that over and over again. So one of the students from Carolina said uh, he received this glowing, glowing letter, acceptance, you coming, we're looking forward to having you. He said the day he arrived on campus with his parents, there was no one there. He didn't know where to go. He didn't know where his room was. He didn't know anything. So he called the campus police and they tried to arrest him, you know, and because they thought he was, you know, someone who was trying to fraud their way onto the campus. And I thought to myself, and I talked to Drew, and I talked to a lot of people about this, is making sure that 
that if you're going to a predominantly white cause, that they know who they're admitting and that when they know who they're admitting, they're making their right accommodations, not just, you know, sending someone a letter, say, welcome, and then goodbye, you know, but getting them through the entire process. And then once he said that, a bunch of other students, the Michigan students said the same thing. I think the others just all had a similar experience. How do we address that so that if we are inviting students to talk, we're also making sure that what they're talking about is being addressed in some way? Yeah, that's, um, yeah, every, every, many people had a similar experience. I think my, they, when I went to the first week of, of classes and stuff, they, they didn't let my father like in the, in the, in the room or whatever it was, the, something. Um, <clears throat> I, I mean, my opinion on this is probably not the, the, the broadly held one. I, I don't necessarily encourage people to pursue going to places where they're unwelcome. I mean, I think there's, there's a couple, I'll put it this way. I think there are a lot of people who are doing work in places like UNC, places like Duke, to try to change those institutions so that they do the things you're talking about. Right? So they know who they're admitting, know, know that maybe not everyone on their campus knows who they're admitting. And so train people to understand like who, what students could look like and what parents could look like. And um, even implementing things where once you're admitted, you're provided some credentials. So when you come on campus, you can present those in a way that everyone is on the same page. You know, why can't you get your student ID before you show up? I mean, there's lots of yep. practical things that can be done. And I appreciate those efforts. I support them. I think they're wonderful but they're not efforts that I personally would spend my time on. I agree. The, the efforts that I spend my time on, and I'm, I'm a UNC employee, are well, what can I do to increase the ability of HBCUs right. to deliver the level of education and research opportunities? What is an HBCU? Job placement oh, opportunities. Historically Black college and universities. Okay. okay. Thank you. Thank you. Um, that uh, that you know that institutions with more with a bigger budget might be able to. Um, so, for example, like the work that I do now, we hire graduate students to work on our team, and of course, we hire UNC students. We hire Duke students, but we also hire North Carolina Central University students, UNC Pembroke students, uh, as well as ECU and a bunch of you know. Um, we're hopefully going to start uh, bringing on some students from. Claflin, which is a HBCU in, in South Carolina. Okay. And so I, that, that's how, that's my, again, my personal approach. I have no qualms at all with people working to change places like UNC and Duke, but I'm not spending my effort in that way. And that, that makes perfectly good sense. I just think that what we assume is when children are old enough to go to college, that they're adults and fully aware of what's around them and what's going to happen to them. And I think in many cases, that's not the case. You know, when you're going to college at 18 or 19 years old, you might have been, a, a, you know, a worldly high school student, but college is a whole different animal. It looks different. It acts different. It feels different. And so if the colleges aren't prepared for the people they're admitting, then they should rethink admitting them because it's really uh, unfortunate that students have that experience. And then how do they recover from that? Because you always have that 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 stain of well you know look at my skin color and look at what it means for me so yeah. thank you much for that 
Drew, you have questions? Yeah, so I'm also curious. This is a very interesting topic to me. And I'm curious, sort of coming from the like Duke employee side, like, are there things that like we as uh, university employees can do to make that like uh, community more welcoming? Like, uh, it, it seems like a very difficult task that maybe not just one person could do, but what are some things that could sort of help to change that culture? So I think that, I mean, the fact that you're asking means that you as an individual you are, are probably not individually part of the problem. Uh, and so f- for someone who is generally welcoming to people, the challenge is how do you help your colleagues um, who, who might not be where you are Right, and that that's that's can be one you don't necessarily know who who are the ones that are ignorant and acting right. I mean, it's it's a it's a challenge, and so um, I I just remember I when I was looking at grad schools, I applied to Duke, and I went on Duke's campus for a visit for a day, and it was amazing the number of curious things that happened just one just one day. And again, I'm you know I'm from I'm from here, right. And so I've been on Duke's campus for like performances and you know all kinds of stuff. But in the context of a, a visit, it was it was quite interesting. And I just, you know, it was kind of like these comments from people that I mean the, the majority of people I, I dealt with were wonderful, right? But in one day running in like there's three different incidents that were just a little, little off. Um, that I, I'm not sure how someone on campus who, um, because they look maybe like a typical student, whatever that is, they just don't, they don't even know what's talked about, right? They don't, they, they don't see it. They don't, so how, and so who do you approach? How do you talk about it? It could be quite challenging. I mean, just one small example. Um, I was meeting with different faculty and to my background is I'm a geoscientist. You know, I, I don't do that work now, but that, that's my background. And so I was meeting a number of faculty members, all will remain unnamed. And I remember one faculty member I met with, the, the initial conversation that this person started to talk wasn't about research. It was about how their children had a black neighbor that had kids that they were able to play with. And that they were so happy that their kids were, you know, black kids. And that's fine, but I'm there to decide whether I want to pursue a PhD in earth sciences. You're someone who is a potential advisor, maybe. And we have a limited amount of time to have a conversation. And the first thing out of your mouth is about how you're happy that your kids has is playing with black kids or something. It was like, uh, okay. Uh, and then there was, a, you know, other things like that. Again, nothing uh, uh, abrasive, but it was just weird, like this weird kind of stuff, right? And that definitely impacted my decision not to come. Uh, it wasn't the only reason, um, but so again, for something like that, like how would, how would you know? How would other... I, I don't know. Um, I don't. I really don't know the. Duke has not figured out, and I don't think Duke is alone in this. They haven't figured out what to do when they admit 
other than white students, especially white affluent students, you know, not just, you know, uh, there was a young white girl there. She was from someplace in New Hampshire or somewhere. And she told me she had imposter syndrome. I didn't know what that was. The first time I had heard it, this is about maybe six, seven years ago. And I'm like, what? And so she says, I don't feel like I belong because they don't speak to me because I don't have this or I don't have that. And if you can imagine that being a black student or a brown student coming to this university for the employees, we still call Duke the plantation. It's, it's run just like a plantation. You got a master and you got a whole bunch of servants and you know that essential workers, like when COVID first hit, the guys who cut the grass, the people who cooked, the people who did all the menial tasks were the people you saw, but everybody else went home and got to work from home. And they were told if, you know, the people who stayed, if you don't come to work at certain realms, we're going to terminate you. So that's what how they treat their employees of color. And I hate that word of color, but they're black and brown employees. But then their students have that same problem. I'll tell you a quick one. A law student, he uh, transferred from UGA, Georgia, to, to Duke uh, to go to law. And uh, he ran out of money halfway through the semester. He didn't have money to continue. He went to financial aid and asked them for some more money. They said no. So he ended up borrowing money from another student in order to stay. But the way he told the story, he was sleeping in his van with his son. He was going to restaurants and eating packs of ketchup to sustain them. They were going to bathe in bathrooms wherever they could find a bathroom that had some kind of shower or something like that. And I'm sitting here thinking, this is a student at Duke, this university, and I don't know what their endowment looks like now, but pre-pandemic after the 2008 thing, their endowment, you know, they had a, pro a program called Go Forward. Uh, and it, they made like a zillion dollars. And you mean to tell me this is how you treat your students? And, and, and I think that what your experience is, probably most students have a similar experience because a lot of the faculty are older. You know, they haven't had a lot of experience with black and brown communities. So they make assumptions. It's not a fact. Like you wanted to know that, that his kid had played with black kids. You, what would you have been if you hadn't known that? You know, he, he's trying to tell you in some clandestine way that he is not prejudiced. Hell, that's exactly what he sounded like. He was prejudiced because that's not something you start a conversation off with, right? So I think they, there's still a lot of work to do in higher ed as a whole, especially higher ed that's accepting black and brown students that are not playing sports. Now, when they play sports, they're the holy grail, right? They get everything that there is to get. But if they're not playing sports, it's an unfortunate experience. Now, I, my historically black college, I went to North Carolina Central. I got three degrees from North Carolina Central. Loved every minute of it. Wouldn't change it for anything. Where I got my doctorate degree, I was a number. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. That's how they referred to me for everything that I did. Never by my name or anything. I was my number. And I'm like, well, there's always that. But at Central, I was Rochelle. And that made me feel like I was someplace and somebody. Yeah, I, I think like what y'all are saying is like incredibly important for people to remember. Like, like college is hard, right? Like college is not easy for anybody, even under like the best circumstances. And then having to go like through like a college experience, like living out of your car. Oh, I can't even imagine that. Like that, I wouldn't have made it through college with that. Like that level of like stress and extra just awfulness. I, I don't see how somebody can do it. Like that's, that's really rough. You learn to make communities and fit in where you can until you can get through it. I mean, because once you're in, it's highly unlikely you're going to transfer and go somewhere else. And, you know, we have been told 
Mark could probably attest to this, is Black people, you know, you get more bang for your buck if you go to a predominantly white college, you know, like going to Central, you know, who's going to give you a job no matter how many degrees you get from Central, whereas if you go to a white college, you're, you have a better chance of getting a job, a job that pays well, and that you can grow and all those things. The problem is, it's just how vulnerable you are there. You know, I told Mark about what happened to me. I mean, like, I did nothing wrong. <laughs> I did my work every day. I helped so many people. And I was vulnerable. And and is it simply because I was Black? I don't know. But it sure felt like it. Yeah. I mean, you also mentioned, you were mentioning about sports and universities and how they're funded, I think is also connected to these things in terms of what the purpose of a student is. And obviously, for, for most teachers, they're focused on teaching and they want to educate as many students as they can. But these institutions, particularly the ones that are, are quite wealthy, are in a game now of how can they increase their endowment. Right. And the relationship between increasing your endowment and education is not clear. Now, your focus on endowment is related to your rankings, is related to other things, but how it relates to the student is, it's, it's a confused kind of thing. And a lot of things start to pile up in ways that if you take a step back and you say, well, what is the real purpose of this, which is to, to educate people and create knowledge, they don't align necessarily. And so you focus on the experience of students who are gonna be your donors. Right. Right. That's, you, you want people who are the most likely to become donors in the future to have the most wonderful experience at your school. And if you're outside of that, your purpose in being there is to contribute to the experience of the people who are gonna become your donors. It isn't, again, if you're focused on the money, there is no value in that student who's not gonna be a big donor. Right. And what's really amazing about that, so I contribute to Central. I have. I have my paycheck, I send it every month through my bill pay. I pay central. I don't pay where I went to school because I felt like an outsider the whole time I was there. I had a black chair for my dissertation. She was a wonderful, brilliant woman. But that was it. That was my whole experience, what my relationship was with her compared to everything else. And I will tell you, a good portion of the students who I know who go to Duke that are black and brown have no intention of ever contributing no matter how much money they make, because they did not have a good experience. The experience did not correlate to dollars. And if you don't change that experience for black and brown students, you're gonna, you're not, they're not gonna be big donors to your endowment. They're not gonna, you know, wanna come back and you know encourage other students to go there because that's not been their experience. And the fact that colleges as brilliant as they're supposedly are, haven't figured this out is 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 strange. Well, well, the the part of it is that. They're doing fine. Yes, yes, they are. So, they don't need our money. And, and so if you're doing, you know, and this is something we run into at, at UNC as well, in different schools at the, at the UNC, where you have, a, you have a, a donor base. And your donor base are typically people who were in school 20 plus years ago and quite wealthy. So one, that basically, for most of these places, that's white men. Uh, and that's always on your mind. The higher you up in the institution, 
their response to whatever it is, decisions you might make about the university, what proclamations, what emails you're sending out, whether you decide to take statues down, <laughs> you know, all of these things, how that group of people responds is what you're focused on. And it requires a, a lot, apparently, yeah. to say, you know what, it's some of these people not giving anymore, the risk of that is worth the reward of new funders, the reward of maybe focusing on education, the reward, these other rewards. And so it, it's not, given that it's working, right? The money's coming. It will take a lot for an institution to really change how it, you know, the environment that it creates, right? For, for the, the fullest breadth of the students that are there, not just the people who are gonna be future donors, but every student. Right, I, I know we don't have much time. Drew's getting ready to tell us, we have to stop talking, but I do wanna raise one little small issue. And that is the black faculty member who had the 1619 project, which was absolutely phenomenal. I mean, just absolutely phenomenal. And that they had the opportunity to have this woman come and be an instructor at their school to contribute to their environment. And it caused so much uproar. I mean, like people quit their jobs and, you know, there was retaliation and all of these things, you know, and, and what people focus on is, oh, well, this just happened here. It happens at Duke every day. You know, my professor, I was just telling you about, she has a JD, a PhD, and she's known worldwide for her work in law and race and, and uh, other things. She applied for a jo job at Duke and they told her she wasn't qualified. The fact is, is that there to, to be black in America means that you can't be average, not if you want to succeed. You can't just come out and say, well, I'm going to come to work every day. I'm going to work my 40 hours. I'm going to go home and I'm going to eat my cheese sandwich. And there it is. You've got to eat your cheese sandwich, climb the building, paint, solve the problem. You've got to do all these other things just to belong. And the problem of diversity and inclusion continues to persist in almost every institution of higher learning, including private companies also, but it continues to exist in a place where it should be least and it continues to exist. Any thoughts about how we change that? Well, um, again, my, my response here may be not the broadly accepted one, I think that broadly there's some broader issues in, in higher education in terms of what is valued. And so you mentioned, for example, the value of a degree from North Carolina Central University versus the value of a degree from Duke University. I think that's, and again, it's not just HBCUs, right? It, it, if, you, if you drew a correlation between endowment and does this resume get you a job at X, I mean, there'd be a huge correlation. And so the idea that education is supposed to be a great equalizer is not true. It's not. Because the hierarchy that exists in our daily life is what is the foundation of, of our universities and how we're thought about, and also community college system, et cetera. It's not about what you know or what you can do. It's about what the paper says on it and who, who lets you in the door and what door you're allowed into. And I think I would be, I'm supportive of figuring out ways to address that broader piece of it because I mean, I, I'll, I'll, you know, and I think there's a, there's a lot of layers to it um, that 
a lot of people, you know, make it very difficult to even to, to address, but, um, you know, even what we think about the experience of a college experience is supposed to be, um, it's a lot, it's a big thing, right? And I, I actually think it should be a little, it should be a little less, <laughs> you know, it really should be, how can people get the education they want to get the things that they want to do in their life? And in a way that when they're done with the education, they're not in a bunch of debt. And so all the things that we now, we pack, try to pack into this college experience. A lot of that, again, is to try to get people to, to come back to this experience of their donors and their fundraising and like all these kinds of things that are building when, if we're fundamentally saying, you know, well, so why did you go to first grade? Why did you go to 10th grade? Why did you go to high school? It's like to get these skills so that you can work out in the world. It doesn't really matter. I mean, again, there's privates and all that, but broadly, it doesn't matter that much where you went to high school. You did well. Okay, that's great. So you can do your thing. And so higher education is not like that, right? You, it's this huge stratification of things. And I mean, there's plenty of firms that will only accept people who graduated from these schools and just all, all this stuff, right? And I think that's all. I, I want to get, you know, <laughs> I want to get rid of all, all of that. All of that. Yep. Um, Absolutely. But, but it means that a place like Duke or even a place like UNC becomes a very, very different place. Yeah. Very, very different place. But, North but, Carolina Central may not be that different, but these other places, they become very, very different. You know, why, like even the way they think about buildings, you know, like why you need marble on the walls? Like, <laughs> right. what is that for? Is to make well, people feel like well, this copy- is the life that's ahead of them forever, right? They're going to be in marble places for the rest of their life. Because right. they went into this institution, you know that, right. that copyright the color of blue you have, or copyright the type of bricks you put on your building. That's too much money to be wasted in and of itself. But I will say this last thing about that: it's like if you invite and accept black and brown students, they ought to see people who look like them in the classroom, teaching, leading, you know, making sure things are set right, as opposed to. So last time I checked, Duke was seventy-three percent white. Uh, I think the number like 60% male, uh, Carolina was something like 80% white and like 70 or 67% male, white male. I mean, you really can't be serious about it if you're not bringing in people who look like these students to help encourage them and support them along the way. The reason why I did so much at Duke was, hell, they found a friendly black face and I became everything. Go do this, Rochelle, go do that. That's crazy that they don't have instructors and people who are around them who are responsible for doing this and helping them get through this education. And I would say the the other alternative is just to be honest and say, you know, to that student, say, dear student, we want to accept you. The reason that we've accepted you is because we want to ensure that the experience of these other students is well-rounded and, you know, don't expect to have any community while you're here. Um, Hopefully this scholarship is enough, you know, to help you feel okay about you know, spending the next four years of your life in, in, in this experience, because it's all about expectations, right? I agree with you. The, the way that places present themselves and the expectations they present are not the experience they have. And right. so either you change the experience or you change what you're telling people. And so I would just say, I think either of those are, are, are options. You know, I, yeah. I'm all about people just being honest, but like just tell people what it's going to be like. Yeah, I agree with Some you. Some of them will still come. 
and they may be okay with it. We're like, you know what? Thanks for telling me. Like now I can spend my time and find my community outside. Of school, you know? yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for listening to Eminent Teachnology. If you like the show, please review, subscribe, and recommend us to your friends and family. We'd love to hear feedback from you as well. You can email us at eminentteachnology at gmail.com. See y'all soon.